You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, a senior editor at The New Yorker. More than 30,000 people are dead after back-to-back earthquakes in Turkey and Syria last week. It's a new level of disaster in a region that has been pummeled by violence and terrorism. As a Syrian refugee in Turkey, quoted in a story for NewYorker.com, put it, we've had 11 years of war in Syria, but what happened in 11 years there happened in 40 seconds here. Ben Taub, a New Yorker staff writer, has reported extensively from the Turkish-Syrian border. But his most recent piece for the magazine was about a man who traveled around the world in a balloon. Today, you'll hear him unravel two of the biggest stories in the news, the aftermath of a major humanitarian crisis and the use of balloons for international espionage. Hey, Ben, thank you for uh, coming today. Thanks for having me on. What are you hearing right now from your friends who are on the ground in Turkey and in Syria? One thing that I was not sort of prepared for in the days after the earthquake was the that the aftershocks were affecting so much of sort of return to life. Um, people whose houses stayed standing were absolutely terrified to return home. And mm-hmm. so in the, in the midst of sort of freezing temperatures and, 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 you know, broken roads and every possible disaster converging at once on this border area that's very fraught for the past decade plus, um, you had this like compounded issue of people sleeping in their cars, trying to find their family members. Um, I called uh, a friend of mine who I haven't seen in a long time. I haven't been back in that area for for a long time. Um, when were you there? I spent a lot of 2013 in Kilis, which is right on the border, just mm-hmm. sort of about 50 kilometers south of Gaziantep, where the epicenter was. Uh, and then Kilis is one of the two border crossings to go to Aleppo, basically. So one of the guys who I knew in Kilis, uh, he had, I think, 22 family members living with him as refugees from the war. He's a Syrian uh, who had fled fled airstrikes and, and, and sort of depredations on the ground. And this is a common situation, right? I mean, a lot of the people who probably live in that part of Turkey are from Syria, refugees. Yeah, you've got sort of, I mean, half of Syria's population has been displaced by the war, uh, half the 21 million people who lived in Syria. And most of those displacements um, took place in the first, say, five years of the war. Um, and to this day, you have about 3.6 million Syrians living in Turkey as refugees. Uh, And some have managed to get their lives on track in certain ways, and many have not. Um, It's an area where there are children who have grown up in tents, you know, from birth, basically. And now some of them are, you know, 10 years old. So I I called my friend Bilal to sort of check in on him. And, uh, you know, thank God he was okay. His immediate family members were okay. Um, But they were very scared. They were refusing to go home. There were cracks in the building, even though it hadn't fallen. And they're just living in a car. Uh, Another person I know in the area is a former fixer for journalists. He used to help journalists go into Syria. And, you know, he risked his life on a weekly basis to sort of guide journalists to the front lines in Aleppo 10 years ago. And he's been living in Kilis and Gaziantep for the past decade plus, also a Syrian refugee. Um, And he lost family members as well. And... Yeah, I mean, you've got now people who have lost everything, uh, including relatives, like twice or three times in some cases in the past 10 years. And it's also just at a point when sort of things had to some degree stabilized in southern Turkey in terms of refugee flows and elsewhere because the front lines in Syria have now been sort of static for some time. And now... 
you know, just when people were sort of maybe getting their lives back on track, um, it's just completely ruined. I mean, it was a sort of random quality to the destruction. There were entire buildings that were flattened right next to buildings that stood standing. And so for a lot of these Syrians who have fled the war a long time ago, one of the like emotionally compounding aspects of this is that just as it was random whether or not you got hit by a barrel bomb or an airstrike, your home was destroyed. Now, similarly, your home was destroyed on the basis of factors that you had absolutely no control over and absolutely no way of anticipating because you just didn't know if you were in a building that could stand or not. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a lot of this randomness is because um, it doesn't seem like there's consistent building codes across the region. And this is something that um, President Erdogan has been criticized for because he made a big deal about how the buildings were up to code. And then it looks like um, a huge number of them were not. When you were there, I mean, did you have a sense of like sort of these larger problems of infrastructure? Like, I guess, how aware were people of the fact that they were in um, living in houses, spending their time in buildings that just would completely crumble if an earthquake came around? I think a relevant aspect of this is just the explosion of the population in that area in, a long, yeah. in the past um, 15 years. There's just been an incredible amount of, of construction taking place. Even back in 2013 and 14, in the early, you know, what now, in retrospect, was the early days of the war, it was just clear that, like, there was a sort of a booming wartime economy on the Turkish side of the border as a result of all the destruction in Syria. And that manifests in many ways from... All the services that are required when large numbers of people move. Uh, And, you know, many of them did have money and funds to rent apartments. Not everyone was living in a tent. And so to accommodate this sort of surge in people, there there was mass construction going on even back then. I read in the Times that there was an amnesty law introduced in 2018 that sort of undermined the efforts to bring buildings up to code because apparently developers who violated the country's building codes could just pay a fine uh, and effectively license their illegal buildings. And this is probably going to be at the core of a lot of, you know, upcoming uh, questions and investigations because apparently the government earned about $3.1 billion from that process of essentially like paying a fine for making a building that would not stand. So far, we've basically been talking about the current state of things in Turkey. But I'd like to move to, you know, talking about Syria, which is obviously right across the border. And, you know, obviously it's a lot harder to get aid into Syria. And, yeah, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you've observed so far or heard about from your sources, just about, um, like, the difference between how both countries are dealing with the earthquakes. So, you know, as a member state of the UN, basically the Syrian government gets to determine where the UN agencies can distribute aid. And the official line is everything has to go through the central government in Damascus. And for the, you know, since 2012, the Syrian government has been using the distribution and the withholding of aid to rebel-held territories as a weapon of war, blocking all shipments of medicine to areas that they were actively bombing, blocking shipments of food to areas that were under siege. Essentially, the view was that if you live in rebel territory, then you are an enemy of the state and you will be punished. And that includes withholding international aid. For a while, you could move, and, and there were efforts to move aid through Turkey into Syria, into northern Syria in particular, which back in 2013 and 14 was firmly in rebel hands. And so there were a lot of international NGOs, some of them sort of working outside of the official Turkish government line of where the border was effectively wide open. You had this incredible flow of journalists, jihadis, aid workers, and weapons into Syria through the same border crossings where you had refugees coming out. And it was a very, very strange time. But those borders were sealed off 
And, you know, this sort of coincided, too, with mass migration to Europe via Turkey. Um, and a lot of pressure to sort of shut off the flow of Syrian refugees into Turkey. And, and, you know, at the same time, the Turkish government was also sending troops starting in 2016 into northern Syria for their own sort of projects. Like they had operations that involved proxy forces uh, out of rebel forces to counteract Kurdish activities in Syria. There, there's so, so many sort of converging things happening on the border. And you have this like 100-year-old completely made-up line that is totally deterministic about you know, the fate of millions of civilians and has been for the whole course of the war. I mean, Kilis, which is on the Turkish side where I was living, used to be part of Aleppo province in the Ottoman times. Mm. And now, well, up until the earthquake, if you were in Kilis, you were effectively safe. And if you were five miles south, you were not at all safe and you couldn't go between them. But now you have like the Syrian government sort of saying all aid has to flow through them. They have a, a long history of abusing that to the point of like basically committing crimes against their own population by withholding aid. I guess I'm wondering if you think that the, the regime could use these earthquakes to their advantage in other ways aside from just blocking aid. I'm thinking about like sort of the proliferation of bad actors in a mm. time of crisis when people are kind of focused on other things. Like you have the media focused on mm, mm. earthquake recovery, that sort of thing. Whenever there's big flows of money or equipment going somewhere, there's always people sort of at the top of certain chains of access who benefit from it um, corruptly. And the Assad regime, as with the Turkish government, are facing quite serious economic crises at the moment, serious devaluations of currencies and so on. And it is possible I read that that inflation in Turkey was 10 times worse than... It was in the U.S. last year. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so what makes it in doesn't necessarily get distributed to the right people in the cleanest possible way on, I think, both sides of the border. And also after this period of, you know, flow back and forth, I mean, there's only one border crossing that is open now, right, for for the U.N.? Yes. Or there, I think, think um, they've announced that they might be opening more, but from what I can tell, it seems like there's just one right now. Yeah, so there's a border crossing called Bab al-Hawa. It's a little bit west of Kilis, and it's in an area that's been completely wrecked by the earthquake. So yes, technically, it is open, but in practice, it's almost impossible to really get the supplies necessary in because the roads are destroyed or the sort of singular road is destroyed, and surrounding buildings too. Um, Anytime you have a mass casualty event, you have health infrastructure unprepared for the fact that all of the injuries look the same, right? So problems of like enough splints, enough wheelchairs, enough crutches for this kind of thing is a real problem. Also, when you have buildings collapsing, especially like shoddily made concrete buildings, in densely packed areas, you have issues of people suffocating from concrete exposure, basically. Like, it goes into their lungs, and it settles in their lungs, and they die. Um, So the sort of range of injuries is incredible. And then you also have a situation where all the health and aid workers and, like, all the doctors, they're also being displaced. They're also uh, having relatives killed. So no one is sort of unaffected, and even those who ought to be in a position to try to help others basically can't. There's even sort of situations where like the wrong aid makes it in. And this often happens in disaster situations, but like the kind of useless aid gets there. Well, I was reading that apparently, so the first earthquake was on Monday. And I think that um, then the first like shipment of aid into Syria, it was on Thursday. And that aid wasn't even like earthquake related aid. It was just aid. aid. Right. So you have like 
diapers delivered, but no one can get the digging equipment to save the babies that they would go on, right? Yeah. And so it's just not what is needed. What you need is heavy machinery, heavy equipment, and like massive amount of medical supplies and people who can, who have the sort of skill set to administer aid. And do you think people in this region of Syria can ever expect that kind of aid? I mean, how is the, um, you know, you've just talked a lot about how um, this has been sort of like a tool of war, you know, to block yeah. aid from entering this region. And it seems like it would be much harder to, maybe diapers can make it in, but large, you know, machinery and those sorts of things. I mean, it just seems incredibly difficult. Yeah, there's a real question that no one has a very clear answer to, which is basically how much of the death and destruction is a result of the natural disaster and how much is a result of the human failures and logistical failures and failures of the international community and the nonsense of a border drawn on a map 100 years ago that has like been totally de- deterministic on the lives of millions of people. Yeah, it's incredibly bleak and there's sort of no clear glimmers of hope. You also have just scenes where days after the collapse of something, people are sort of trapped in these air pockets inside. So they are alive. People walking past can hear them sort of begging for help and phones ringing, etc. And no one can get to them. And then after a few days passing cold nights in the winter, you know, the, the, the sort of cries for help just stop. And that's about the time that we're at right now, about eight days in. There's very, very slim hope for uh, for further rescues um, starting around now. You'll hear more from Ben Taub in just a moment. After the break, he'll discuss the saga of the spy balloons. So, Ben... You're in a sort of unique position where you're able to talk about a second story that has been um, just all over the news lately, which is this story about the the balloons, specifically the spy balloons. You know, we first saw a spy balloon that came from China that was over Montana, and now there have been other unidentified flying objects that have been spotted in various places. And your most recent piece for the magazine was about Bertrand Picard, um, who flew around the world in a balloon which was a story that sort of forced you to become extremely knowledgeable about balloons and um, how they work. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any special insights into this story, given your reporting for the Picard piece. So balloons have a couple of advantages in terms of espionage equipment, essentially. For one, they can go up to incredibly high altitudes and stay relatively static and still and just kind of float about without really being noticed. When you get into altitudes like 60,000 plus feet, it can be really hard to detect things unless they're absolutely enormous, as many of these, in fact, are. But also, balloons are a little bit difficult to detect on radar. They're sort of inherently stealthy because they have inert gas. They don't produce any sort of significant amount of heat. So they don't really have it like an infrared signature. And because they don't have a lot of metal... And they don't really have rough edges. They, they have like a very minimal radar return, which makes them hard to see. And then they're also hard to shoot down because they've got so much buoyant material inside them. And they're so huge that like even a thousand rounds, like bullet rounds into something might take like a week for it to descend. And then you don't know where it's going to descend. And you don't know if it's going to like damage civilian infrastructure or kill people, essentially. 
That's interesting because, I mean, I think the first spy balloon that we were sort of reading about was the spy balloon that appeared in um, in Montana from China, and it took the U.S. quite a while to take it down. And I think that, at least for me, it was sort of unclear whether that was because we were, you know, did we actually buy this explanation from China that it was just like a research balloon or, you know, or whether we just were taking a while because we couldn't shoot it down. And it sounds like there's a good chance that it might have been the latter. Well, and there's obviously lots of there's like, diplomatic. There's just incredible yeah. <laughs> risk of shooting it down in terms of like not knowing where the pieces will fall because mm-hmm. the materials are heavy. I mean, I don't know the specifics of that balloon, but many of these balloons can be sort of so big. I mean, the, the actual sort of metallic parts for, for for surveillance might be like the sizes of several buses. And then the balloon itself can be, I mean, just completely enormous. There was one sort of test balloon that was around the size of of a football stadium when it was flown. Are these usually like military balloons or balloons used by countries for espionage? They can be. Um, You also have some like very sort of advanced private sector projects, some well-publicized, some, you know, public, but no one really notices or cares. You know, a few years ago, Google created one uh, a, a sort of a super pressure balloon that could stay afloat for 300 days. It stayed afloat for 300 days. So you you have these things that can sort of stay in the sky for a long period of time, not easily noticed, don't really require much propellant. They can be remotely controlled in some sense for going up and down, which can control the rough direction by catching different winds. So they're very sort of useful tools. One of the stranger things has been there's also been these sightings recently of much smaller craft, things the size of a car, where they didn't really know how or they haven't made public at least how it was staying afloat. Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, so over the past few days, so obviously this all kind of began with the balloon in Montana, but then over the past few days, there have been a number of sightings. I think the U.S. shot a an unidentified flying object over Canada. Are those all balloons or are those what are those? So it's not totally clear how those were staying aloft at this point. That one, I believe, was around the size of a car and had a, an octagonal shape, according to the reports. Which is still so, not, so not necessarily a balloon, but yeah. Yeah. And so how it was staying up is a big question. What it was doing at 20,000 feet, sort of what its propellant was, is a big question. Now, I have no answers to those. What I do know, though, is that there are craft, not just military craft, they're private sector projects to build, you know, advanced solar-powered aircraft. And the challenge with solar power is solving the power-to-weight ratio because a solar cell can sort of only collect so much energy at any given time. It changes throughout the day, whether it's night or day, you have major challenges or issues. Like you can charge up the batteries during the day and then have the propellers keep going at night. But that means that you have to deal with batteries that can be heavy and can weigh the thing down. So it gets really, really difficult to build um, solar powered craft that can stay aloft. But theoretically, um, they can achieve perpetual flight and they can go up to incredible altitudes, 100,000 feet plus, um, and just continue sort of circling the earth. Is that useful for espionage? Not sure, because I'm I, I'm not sure if the sort of power-to-weight ratio is sufficiently solved to handle the weight of some of the sort of advanced imaging equipment you might have on, on such a craft. Um, that's why balloons are sort of more practical. But small, difficult-to-detect, solar-powered craft, entirely possible. Uh, to what end? Hopefully we'll find out in the next few months. <laughs> I mean, it's from what you've been saying, it sounds like the testing out of these various vehicles, like this has been something that's been happening for a very long time. But obviously, um, 
it's constantly been in the news, and it seems like there has been an escalation of um, just sort of like in the, in the number of these vehicles that are either flying or that we're seeing. Do you think that we're just noticing more of them now, that you know we're on the lookout for them and that's what has changed, or do you think that there are actually just more? It's probably some sort of combination of those two factors. I was reading that NORAD has been adjusting the filters and algorithms it uses to examine radar data. And this makes them more sensitive to detect these kinds of objects at different altitudes because these are things that are smaller and slower and differently shaped than than the sort of aircraft and missiles that traditionally the U.S. military has been focused on in terms of penetrating U.S. airspace. And so I think to some degree this just is a bit of a wake-up call that they have to be a little bit more creative about looking for things just as the U.S. and other countries are being more creative about making things that can avoid existing detection systems. So it's a cat and mouse game as ever. And that's an important point. I mean, I feel like there's been a lot of focus on China's efforts to, um, you know, I, I was. I think it's like they've sent these balloons to five continents, 40 different countries. But this is something that the U.S. is just as engaged in, too, probably. I would be surprised if the U.S. doesn't use uh, spy balloons in some capacity. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, for, already on battlefields, they're very active, but not in a way that is sort of um, uh, not necessarily these high altitude things. But, you know, in Iraq, for example, a few years ago, when I was driving past a base in Kayara, south of Mosul in like post-ISIS mess, essentially, we would see these enormous airships that were tethered to the ground. And they would have very, very sensitive surveillance equipment attached to them where you can sort of stare at an enemy combatant in high definition from 10 to 15 miles away. Um, the kind of stuff that can't be done with a satellite, the kind of stuff that isn't tethered to a base so you don't have to send a drone, you don't have to... Like a lot of aerospace technology is also just dual use, right? And that's why it's tricky to pin responsibility or intent on certain craft. China says it's a weather balloon. The U.S. might say it's a spy balloon. Might the equipment on it be similar? Like to some degree, maybe. Might the actual vehicle itself, the actual craft used to lift whatever the sensitive equipment was, be very similar, if not identical? Also, yes. And and that's sort of true across domain. In the North Atlantic, you have you know, Russian fishing boats that are being used for espionage missions. In the South China Sea, you have Chinese fishing boats being used for matters that are clearly state. Run. You're not, they're not looking for fish. Um, I think that basically anytime you get into areas where it's difficult to travel in the medium, whether it's water or it's air, you just have a, like a wider range of things that are useful in more than one way. I mean, I think that you mentioned this earlier, but, you know, a lot of the pilots in Montana were saying that these you know, UFOs in the sky that they just could not see a propulsion device. Yeah. And so they were like, we don't know what's keeping this thing up. And yeah. it seems odd. And it seems like you were saying that this is just what a solar powered vehicle can Perhaps. look like. Perhaps. We don't, we don't really know. But we just know that like there are a lot of ways of keeping things aloft. And if you can produce enough energy to move a small propeller on a very light device and, you know, it's sufficiently designed in terms of its aerodynamics, it will stay up. And, and there are all kinds of ways of sort of shielding the propellers, and, or they could be rather small if the thing's the size of a car, like maybe a pilot doing a flyby in, in an F-35 like, isn't going to see it. Yeah. Um, I think we just have to be open-minded to the fact that, you know, 
aerospace engineering and research is incredibly advanced and has been for the past like 60 years. And a lot of stuff, like the most advanced stuff we don't know about, that's always been true until sort of decades later we find out about things. And so I guess it's just a little bit unusual that we're starting to, like the detection is catching up with the construction in a sense, right? So I don't read these stories and think about them coming from other planetary systems. I read them and think, oh, interesting. The level of construction and development is ahead of what we were aware of. And how fun in the sense that we're getting a little glimpse into that now. Ben Taub is a staff writer at The New Yorker. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Sydney Cobb. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.